I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. One key goal in developing precision vaccines and immune therapies is straightforward and imperative to reduce the risk of breast cancer recurrence. Yet currently, there's only one FDA-approved immunotherapy for breast cancer, and it benefits just a small subset of women. That's among the reasons that Dr. Karen Anderson is studying the proteins in breast cancers that can be recognized by specialized immune cells called T-cells. These efforts could lead to the creation of vaccines and additional targeted therapies that treat a broader range of patients. And of course, we would all like to know, what's the progress? Some background. Dr. Anderson is a translational researcher at the Biodesign Institute at Arizona State University with a joint appointment as a breast cancer medical oncologist at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. Her fascinating research focuses on how the immune system can be harnessed to detect and alter cancer development. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Karen Anderson. Dr. Anderson, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Perhaps we could start with a, a brief coronavirus update. Breast cancer patients and their families. What are you hearing from the breast cancer community? What are you hearing from uh, patients? Oh, you know, it is so important to our patients right now. Um, in the you know in the time of coronavirus, it is you know really changed. A lot of how uh, clinics are working, it impacts everything uh, that they're going through. As you know, you know, cancer patients in particular, patients that are undergoing active chemotherapy and immune suppressive therapy are at particular uh, and potential for risk uh, because they're immune suppressed. And um, it is so important and challenging for them to to actively undergo care, uh, to work out the logistics of going into the clinic, um, how to get tested, how to isolate effectively. Um, um, it impacts their families. It impacts uh, is really, I would say, um, impacted the, the cancer community uh, tremendously. Um, also in how we deliver care, obviously, there's been a lot more uh, rapid and necessary development in, in video conferencing, in telehealth and telemedicine, and trying to, you know, limit um, the contacts and exposures for our patients so that, so that they can, we can focus on the, on the care that they need. Um, yeah. It, it, it's been a, it, it's been incredible how the community has has come around to 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 help help facilitate the the care of our patients um, and and being able to provide cancer care and and top flight cancer care in this time and and help protect them as well during during coronavirus. It's really kind of the last thing in a way I would think that any you know situation like breast cancer and it's not alone there are others would need. You're already in a high stress level of concern situation. It seems like it's just another real degree of difficulty. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, they have enough to worry about. But I will tell you, you know, my patients have just been extraordinary, you know, with their families that have taken this in stride. They've just made the adjustments that they need to do. Um, and, you know, clinically also, you know, with with testing prior to chemotherapies, with, with adjusting um, treatment regimens and being able to um, to really take it in stride and move forward with it. Um, I mean, all of us know people who have been dealing with it and, you know, and, um, and it, it changes the way that we're able to communicate with people. It's, it's, it's tough on our patients. There's no question. Now you work at Arizona state's biodesign Institute. I understand you do your clinical work at the Mayo clinic in Arizona. Um, but in reading and researching for this, I saw where the Biodesign Institute has been converted into a fully FDA-approved and clinically certified lab capable of performing thousands of COVID-19 tests per day. Have you been involved in that at all? Well, when um, coronavirus was starting in our community, it was uh, recognized by the leadership in our institution um, that that we were going to need to be able to do more testing. Uh, we had the fortune, really, to have um, high-throughput robotic systems that were capable of doing these kinds of tests, not for COVID specifically, but but those types of quantitative PCR tests um, already here for, for a, really another project. And so that work was pivoted over uh, to developing a... Um, uh, CLIA, you know, a, sort of a high-level clinical lab type of setting for um, for coronavirus. Several of the members of my laboratory have been working in the coronaviral testing uh, facility, including my lab manager. We've been able to shift some of the the work so that they can um, they can ramp up and be able to do this testing. Is is it's been really important uh, for the university and for Arizona to be able to provide uh, more testing uh, facilities and capabilities um, for for identification of uh, people, for able to um, screen people and emergency workers um, as well, and and to start thinking about. Um, what it's going to take to, to return um, and the return to work components of this. So uh, they were able to, to ramp up for testing. And I think that, that that's been critical here at the university. And we're just now starting from a laboratory standpoint to, to think about reopening laboratories for other types of research. Mm. Talk about translational medicine and taking learnings from one area of science and applying them to others. I've heard that part of cancer research so much. You know, you're just describing a whole other level of that kind of taking of skills from one part of science and applying them to another. And uh, it just sounds like all, all hands on deck. Absolutely. But I think that um, there have been a lot of advances in nucleic acid sensing and testing that is coming out from the COVID epidemic that I predict in, in, in turn will end up impacting breast cancer diagnostics and care. Um, as we learn better how to, how to sense nucleic acid, in this case for coronaviral nucleic acid, but I think that many of those systems and approaches are going to start to be applicable for other things, whether it's hmm. in, 
infectious diseases for our patients or whether it's actually genotyping, um, identification of high-risk individuals, processes like that. I, I, I suspect there's going to be um, collateral benefit, I would say. Well, that would be fascinating. That'd be kind of nice for something positive like that to come out of this challenge that everyone is facing. If we could, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your work. Broadly speaking, you are in the vaccine business, and we hear a lot about vaccines these days, of course, with the search for um, the coronavirus vaccine. At the highest level, now that many of us are getting kind of a 101 on how to create a vaccine from people like uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, how does your process compare to what we all hear about uh, on television nearly every day? What we do in our laboratory has been identifying neoantigens or neoepitopes. And what that means is trying to find out what's different about the cancer cell compared to a healthy cell and use that for the vaccine. So in coronavirus, it's it, relatively straightforward. The virus is different. And so you can take pieces of the virus and then you can generate vaccines to those pieces of the virus. And most vaccines that are being developed for coronavirus are trying to target antibody immunity, just like most of your usual vaccines for for pathogens and infectious disease. But for cancer, the types of vaccines that we're looking at developing are really designed to create T-cell responses. It's the other sort of half of the immune system and how it will react against cancer. So we're trying to create strong T-cell responses, but they have to be specific to the cancer and not to healthy tissue. And so a lot of what we try to develop is what is different about a cancer compared to a healthy person. And it's different for everybody's breast cancer. Um, they, they mutate and they alter in different ways. And so you have to do it in the context of those tumors. So what we're doing is trying to, to identify what those targets are for each individual person and then to think about how to design those next generation vaccines along the similar kinds of lines that people are doing for coronavirus. Uh, There's a lot that overlaps um, in strategy Um, and then try to eventually try to get those into clinical trials. It's a very different process that you're undergoing than what we all might be becoming used to and hearing about every day. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, it's the the types of targets and, and how to build them um, are much more complicated because you're not just looking at a spike protein or, you know, a piece of the virus. You have to go after the tiny little pieces that the that the T cells see and they're yep. they're much smaller little fragments and you got to kind of rebuild them into a new version of a vaccine and it's like putting a bunch of little jigsaw puzzle pieces back together your research is described as focusing on how the immune system can be harnessed to detect and alter cancer development um, I really I love that description what does it mean to harness one's immune system well, I think what the field of cancer immunology has has realized over the last decade is that there is 
for a lot of cancers, um, in particular in breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer and HER2 breast cancers, have pre-existing immune responses. So it's not that the immune system hasn't been involved and, and it doesn't already recognize that cancer, but the cancer turns it off. And, and so part of what immune therapy does is just reactivate what's already there. And then part of what vaccines are designed to do is to try to retrain it to recognize even more strongly and more robustly. But what we have learned is that across the board in, in, in cancers, whether it's you know lung cancer or bladder cancer or breast cancer, a lot of these cancers have some amount of, their, of what we call, you know, well, pre-existing immunity, and, and, and they are what we call hot tumors. In other words, there's an inflammation that is already occurring at the cancer, and, and part of the strategy is just to wake that back up. And then there's a subset of breast cancers that are cold that don't have a lot of pre-existing immune response, and there you really have to get it reactivated. You have to try to drive it to new responses and try to make them more act, immune active. And, and, and what's the why? why? Why are some hot and some cold? Why do you need to reactivate? The, you know, why is the reactivation process um, so challenging? Is that, you know, t- t- talk to me about the, uh, you know, the, the discovery process that someone like you has to go through. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not sure that we know why some are hot and some are cold. What we do know is that the more mutated, the more altered that tumor is, um, the more sensitive it is for immune therapy. So in other words, the immune system has more things it can see that are different. You're looking for differences between tumor and normal tissue. More change that tumor is, the more things it can see uh, that is different. And that is certainly related in part to, to a tumor being hot versus cold, is how different is it. And then it's also in part how the tumor itself has evolved to evade the immune system. And it does it in different ways. And so scientists like myself are, are trying to look at, well, well how... Are, what are the different ways? Because I suspect we're going to be designing vaccines that are going to be different depending on how those tumors are immune silenced, how they're evaded um, the immune system, how they're cloaked really from the immune system. And that's going to be different for different types of breast cancers. And the good news in your work, as I understand, is that targeted immunotherapy with checkpoint inhibitors has been effective in some patients with solid tumors, including triple negative breast cancer. Um, the, the challenging aspect, of course, is that only a subset of patients respond. Is that accurate? Is that the the status of of some of the work to this point? Absolutely. I mean, it. it we now have the FDA approval of atezolizumab uh, uh, with chemotherapy in, uh, for women with stage four breast cancers. Um, it clearly has a benefit in a subset of, of patients, and it's really it's those tumors that rely on that PDL1, PD1 pathway to turn off the immune system. Uh, so that was really the 
first evidence that a sort of a T-cell targeted type of approach can have an impact uh, for patients with breast cancer, but that's only a subset of women with triple negative breast cancers. So what about the rest? And how can we make that work better? So some of the work, obviously, that a lot of people are doing are trying to identify, well, which cancers are going to be sensitive to immune therapies, the ones that we already have available. And then, you know, the next step is, well, what new immune therapies can we use for breast cancer to try to make them be seen by the immune system, to turn those cold tumors hot, to try to create vaccines that might reduce recurrence rate, which is really what we're focusing on. In in terms of your focus, you use, as I understand it, computational programs as well as proteomics, the large-scale study of proteins made throughout the body. How do those approaches work together? So we rely on computational systems to t- help us see what is different between the, the tumor and normal breast tissue. And what we've been looking at up until this past year has been, well, what's mutated? Mm. You know, one thing is mutated, one thing isn't. Is there something in those mutations that we might be able to see, like mutations in genes like PIK3CA or P53, driver mutations and that, that are found throughout breast cancer? So unfortunately, that's only a small subset of the differences that are in tumors between healthy and, and, and tumor. And so we've started to develop newer, broader scale uh, prediction programs to, to be able to mine the huge amount of differences that are hidden. And I would say that the mutations are just sort of the tip of the iceberg about what is different in a tumor versus normal tissue. And so we've now developed some newer computational programs to, to, um, to look at the, the broad array of genes that are expressed that are unique and that might be highly immunogenic. A new one that we just developed recently looks at um, is a program called Ensemble MHC. And what that does is it it helps improve our prediction um, efficiency. So we combine proteomics. And what proteomics is, is it's a broad study of all the proteins in the cell. Are the computational programs the work that your colleagues are adding to the the proteomics and, and to the ability to be able to kind of analyze or make predictions about thousands of proteins at a, at a given time? Is, is that computational work almost reinventing the approach? It's been changing my mindset. Um, and if you think about targets that, that you can drive an immune response to, and if you think, well, maybe there's a couple of targets in that tumor, you build your vaccines in one way. You, you, you approach it in another way. If, if this combination of computational systems and proteomics tells you, all right, there's actually these 250 targets, then it might be very good. And there might be another thousand underneath that that we don't might be there, but maybe aren't important. 
it changes the way we do science. It changes the way we prioritize these. It changes the way we think about our vaccine strategies, about what we might need to do to create an effective immune response. Because the one thing we know about cancer is it's very good at changing. It, it, mm. it, It'll mutate, it'll alter. If we create a vaccine to one thing, it's gonna try to lose that thing, it's gonna change it, it's gonna mutate it, it's gonna evolve some other cancer that maybe doesn't rely on that. It'll it'll find ways around what your that immune response. So you need to target multiple things. You need to go after multiple targets and you need to do it early and you need to do it um, um, effectively early on. That's the best way to reduce recurrence. Of cancers, we know this. You know, we've learned this from chemotherapies and from hormone therapies and others. Is it accurate to describe one of your goals is to determine what proteins in breast cancers can be recognized by the T cells of the immune system? Is that an accurate characterization of one of your goals? Yeah, absolutely. And so then, here's my dumb question to follow up on the goal. For all of us, would our T cells recognize different proteins? Okay, for patient A, which proteins do his or her T cells actually recognize? Oh, no, you're spot on right. I think that, as with all things, it's a combination. Hmm. Uh, There are common targets that the immune system can see. Something like HER2 new, right, is a common target for you know, 25% of breast cancers. But what we're going after is actually going to lead to more precision medicine. It's going to be different for every single tumor because we know that they mutate and they alter differently. And the immune system and how T cells see things is you have different HLA, you have different genetics in how your immune system sees a tumor or sees a virus or sees a coronavirus and how your immune system sees it compared to somebody else. And that's based a lot on your genetics. And in the same way that, that your transplantation proteins, you know, you can't just transplant a kidney from one person to another. It needs to be a match. Right. And so, so it's the same kind of idea. So we have the tumors that are unique and then your immune system that's unique. And so both of those lead to what will probably end up being, you know, precision-based immune therapies. Now, there are a lot of people, ourselves included, who are trying to find some parts of that that are in common between people. So we can start with the simpler ones that are in common and like PIK3CA mutations or P53 mutations where you've got common targets that might be present in 2% of breast cancer patients or or some number. And those might, might be a place to start. But I think ultimately, I predict we're going to have to have precision vaccines that are unique for each individual patient. What are you most excited about regarding your work right now? Mm-hmm. I am most excited right now with when we integrate the proteomic work, when we integrate that type of biochemistry with the power of computational structure work, then I think what we can start to do is to bypass a lot of the really um, slow 
biochemical work that gets us there. And, and, and what am I trying to explain? So let's say your tumor has a hundred or a thousand targets. Okay, I can go test those in the laboratory, but it's, it's very hard to design a vaccine with a thousand targets. Maybe I can do it, you know, we can do it to a hundred or something, but, but we need to know which hundred we want to go after, which 50 we want to go after. So to narrow that down has actually been hard. And we're starting to develop structure-based modeling systems to be able to tell us, well, these are the ones we really need to go after. And so we can speed up the process because for me taking, you know, months in the laboratory to narrow that down, we're now learning, okay, well, maybe this computer can tell me which 50 to go after and, and it only has to run an hour mm. to be able to tell me that. And the better we get at that, the more efficient we get at this, then we can really start the efficiency of trying to design the best possible vaccines to reduce recurrence rates and do that in a timely fashion, an efficient fashion that'll make it feasible to manufacture these things um, and to be able to deliver them. And it's so straightforward to understand how that can directly impact people's lives and quality of life. And, you know, we, we started out this conversation talking about the amount of stress that um, a person and uh, her family is under when going through breast cancer and, and other uh, diseases and situations as well. But that, that worry, back of the mind worry about recurrence has got to be ongoing one of the great stress components. And what you're talking about, heightening the ability to potentially work on and, and reduce recurrence and do it in an exponentially faster time, the, the line that from your work to potentially improving one's lifestyle at the least, if not one's potentially life expectancy, that's got to feel pretty good. We will see what role things like vaccines have in the armamentarium that we have for cancer care. The more ways we can go at this, the, the better we can do to reduce recurrence and also reduce toxicity, you know, that, that we can yes. go at cancer in multiple different ways. And I certainly envision um, a time where part of our adjuvant therapy, you know, you, maybe you get your surgery, maybe you get your treatment before surgery, maybe you get radiation, but, but part of this is also going to be immune therapy to reduce recurrence, immune therapy of some form. Mm. And, and I am hopeful uh, that that will start to have an effect and a benefit for patients with cancer. I think that remains to be seen. There are a number, a lot of clinical trials ongoing right now already with vaccines, um, targeting for triple negative breast cancers, for HER2-type vaccines, for others. But I think you're going to start to see a lot more of those clinical trials coming forward as we learn who might benefit from them and and which ones work and which ones don't. And as we talk about those clinical trials and to start to close out our conversation, what role has BCRF played in your research? Um, it, they've been absolutely integral for everything that we've been doing for the vaccine development. Um, the, they have funded some of the very early research that we need, the, the pilot research, sometimes the, the, 
you know, the crazy research, (laughs) but but where it's, 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 it's early and, and, and it's developmental and, and you have to do that in order to get it to a point where you can compete for regular grants or do other projects. And it has really allowed me and my laboratory to do a lot of focus on breast cancer and on this particular question in breast cancer. And, um, I think the BCRF is an incredible organization. Um, there's, it allows us to be, we come together as, as researchers and as clinicians. Um, we talk about our work. We collaborate. Um, we have one mission and one mission only. And to, you know, to prevent and treat um, and, and help uh, our patients with breast cancer. And that guides everything that we do on this project and and BCRF reminds us of that and um and the support is absolutely undeniable in terms of the impact it has on the breast cancer community breast cancer care Dr. Anderson thank you it's always a treat to get to talk with you thank you for the work that you do and thank you for taking the time with me today well thank you so much this has been great Chris thank you That was my conversation with Dr. Karen Anderson. My thanks to Dr. Anderson for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.